Hi and welcome to the Journalism Salute. I'm Mark Simon. In each episode, we'll talk to or about an interesting person or organization related to journalism. The intent is to show that journalists are not the enemy of the people. Thank you for listening. On today's episode, we're joined by sports enterprise writer Alex Coffey. Alex is one of my favorite sports writers. She spent a little less than two years at The Athletic covering the Seattle Storm of the WNBA and the Oakland A's in Major League Baseball. Now she's going it on her own as a freelancer, but this is high-level freelancing. Her recent work has been featured in the New York Times, USA Today, and Fox Sports. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me, Mark. So the first thing that we always ask everyone, share the story of your journalism path. Yeah, I, uh, my path was not a straight line. I, you know, I was introduced to sports writing through my dad, who was a sports writer himself for the New York Daily News. You know, he would bring me to events. I went to the Olympics. Um, I went to two different Olympics um, in 1994. And in 2006, he would bring me to the U.S. Open. He'd bring me to baseball games. And I don't know how this was allowed, but he would just bring me into the press box. Um, <laughs> kind of seems like that is a thing of the past now. <laughs> yep. And, you know, so I was always around writers. I was always around journalism. Um, but he all, I think another, another influence on me was just, he just raised me on really good writing. You know, I read like books of Red Smith's work and Frank DeFord was one of my favorite writers. Um, you know, like these old school guys, like, I, I don't know, I didn't, I came up, reading reading that kind of stuff so I think that that had an impact on me too um but originally I didn't really have I don't know I just didn't really it hadn't really clicked in my head I didn't really see it as a career for myself and part of that was just seeing the brutal you know like layoffs and um like the ugly side of the industry and I think that that kind of spooked me as I was graduating college but um after college I worked in PR for a couple of years for the Seattle Mariners and the Baseball Hall of Fame. Um, and when I was out in Seattle, I just kind of had an epiphany moment and realized that I didn't want to do PR anymore and that I was leaving my job to become a freelancer and hope that it all works out, um, which my parents were less than thrilled about. And yeah, so I basically just kind of bet on myself, took a job with The Athletic, um, a freelance job covering the WNBA. And then it was just kind of in the right place at the right time when a full-time job opened up to cover the A's. So um, a lot of luck involved too, but, um, but that's kind of my path in the Cliff Notes version of my path. <laughs> sure, that's the Cliff Notes. Let's get a little more specific. You come from a, a journalism family all the way around, not just your father, but your mother too, and your brother. Uh, can you tell us about, uh, you, can you tell us a little bit more background on each of them? Yeah, so my mom uh, used to work for Scholastic in publishing, and before that, she worked for a newspaper outside of Baltimore, so she worked for a newspaper in Maryland. She also did a little bit of photo journalism, um, which complemented her background. She studied international relations in college, so um, she would go and do things like take photos of, uh, like go to Tibet and take photos of monks being shot at by police. Chinese police officers, um, you know, really easing her way into the photojournalism wow. sphere and then smuggled it back and sold it to, I think it was Life magazine. Yeah. So she did that kind of stuff. And then my, um, my brother is, a, he was a sportscaster for um, a news station down in Texas. 
And he recently got a promotion. Now he's an anchor at a, a TV station in Pennsylvania. So, so yeah, we're all kind of, and then my sister's a, a soccer player at Penn State. So we're all, <laughs> we all have our own corner of this world. You know, me and my dad kind of occupy more of a similar corner of it. But, um, but yeah, definitely have journalism roots there. All right. So your, your family, I would say, fully immersed in the journalistic and sports mm -hmm. uh, worlds. Do you have a favorite uh, time and person in sports history or a favorite and or a favorite journalist in history that you'd like to share with mm. us? I don't know about time, but I would say, I guess time, I would say the 70s, just because I love, I just love how like managers would go berserk. And, and this isn't like a 70s exclusive thing, but when I think about the 70s, I think about like Sparky Anderson and like all these, I don't know. I kind of think of like those old school managers who would, you know, throw a temper tantrum and like throw dirt in people's, like, I love that. Like, I love the, the art of that and how you can use, how it's kind of this like way of motivating your players, even though you're making a fool of yourself. Um, and that's something that we don't really have anymore. Um, yep. So I would say uh, 70s and some great uniforms back then too. So that would be my pick for time, like 70s baseball. And then um, I wrote a story a while back about, I think, I don't know if we ever talked about it, but about Clyde Sukeforth, who is a former player who became a scout. Um, and he worked for the Dodgers organization and was the guy that scouted both um, Jackie Robinson and Roberto Clemente. Um, he had moved to the Dodgers or the Pirates um, when he scouted Clemente. So he did both of those for Branch Rickey. And he is my favorite just because he um, grew up in a really small town in Maine, you know, not a diverse, <laughs> not a diverse place at all, the, the area that he grew up in. Um, but he just had this, you know, he was just very ahead of his time, very progressive. Um, and, you know, just treated both of those guys with respect and, like he had a really big he was a big key in, in both of those guys making it to the big leagues um and you know didn't do it for clout so he's probably my my favorite and a favorite uh sports writer sports writer um I don't think I could pick one if I had to pick like three it'd probably be um S.L. Price, um, Frank DeFord, and who did I mention earlier? I'm drawing a blank now. Um, Roger Angel. But I also, I mean, contemporary people. I think my favorite is actually Jeff Passan. He, he's a good friend of mine. You know, he's a great guy, obviously. But, and, like, and I give him like a ton of credit for being able to report what, the way he does. And he can kind of do everything. He's on TV. He can break news. But, but his writing is spectacular. And um, He's got a real gift for writing feature stories, even if that is not his, <laughs> his full-time job, which kind of pisses me off. So, <laughs> Yep, I, f I fully understand what you're, what you're saying there. I had one other thing before we get in, we dive into some of your work. When I was in my early 20s, I was very into baseball history, very into sports history, very into mm -hmm. history in general. And when I uh, dealt with people, uh, I think they were somewhat taken aback by, by a young person's interest in history. And I'm curious if you had any encounters like that uh, in your uh, sports writing travels. Yeah, no, I definitely have just working at the Hall of Fame. And, you know, I like my job was to be immersed in history. And even though it was my job, I definitely got the sense that people were surprised that someone who was 
uh, how old was I when I was working there? Like 25 or so was as steeped into it as she was. <laughs> but I mean, I, I've always been interested in history. It's something that, you know, I studied in college and um, it's always been something that I've been passionate about. And the game's history is so rich, you know, it's, it's easy to kind of dive into. So yeah, I, I definitely get that kind of reaction of like, how old are you? Were you alive when that happened? Like, well, well, you know, yep. all that sort of stuff. But, um, but I take pride in it. <laughs> nice. Okay. So uh, you're writing, you don't look for what I would call run of the mill stories. And I get the feeling that you're not necessarily that into transactional journalism. This guy's injured. injured this guy's on the injured list. Uh, this guy's called up. What characterizes your writing? I would say, I think empathy and like, you know, just trying to understand how certain things feel. That's kind of at the, the, I mean, it sounds like an obvious way to put it, but that's what I'm always trying to kind of get to the bottom of is even if I am reporting something out that's transactional, like I remember um, there was, uh, I don't know, like there was a, there was a trade a while back and it was like the first trade that the A's and the Giants had made in a really long time. Like they don't make a lot of trades. Um, and you know, I, I had the option of reporting it straight and just saying like, wow, this is, this is like a historical anomaly. Um, this never happens. And just writing about the player they acquired who was Birch Smith and they just acquired him for cash considerations. But then um, I ended up doing some digging and realized that the last time a player had been traded, I think it was um, Darren Lewis. Yeah. Yeah. And then I like went down this rabbit hole and realized that Darren Lewis was named um, or Darren Baker, Dusty Baker's son was named for Darren Lewis. And it ended up being this whole, and apparently like Dusty Baker was also in one of these trades. He's like Bay area. Uh, I don't remember if it was A's to giants or giants to A's, but anyway, it was like, just this weird, his not historical link that connected them. So I ended up writing this like story about that and like how they were connected by these rare, um, rare trades and why Dusty named his kid after Darren. And like, it kind of became more of a story about their relationship. Um, but yeah, I'm always, I don't know, I guess I'm always trying to kind of like get to the bottom of like how people process things and how like, I don't know, baseball is full of all, of all this movement, like transactions and people being placed on the IL and like all like a million things happening at once. But I think that there's, um, like if you kind of take a microscope and pause everything and like really think about, you know, what it's like to, I don't know, be traded to X team when you've been with Y team for X amount of time, or like, I don't know, I'm always looking at things through, through that lens. I think it's definitely, I would characterize it as having more of a human interest, like tilt to it. I wrote, so I wrote uh, empathy, deep sense of history, well-reported, clever idea. And as a writer, when I read your work, my response at the end of it is usually, how the heck did she come up with that? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah, anyway, yeah. Uh, and with that in mind, you know what? I'm, I'm going to flip the order a little bit here. Uh, um, I want to go to the first story that I can remember reading of yours, uh, which was mm -hmm. in The Athletic a couple of years ago. It began with this lead. I think great bookstores reflect a population of the city they're in. 
And the books that that player, whose name is Corey Guerin, likes aren't basic fare. The book that changed his life was The Alchemist, about a boy who follows a prophetic dream to Egypt in search of treasure. Then you're in the library with this baseball player, trading favorite last lines with him, and you agree. So we beat on Boats Against the Current, Born Back Ceaselessly into the Past, which is the last line of The Great Gatsby. And he's standing there with you, and he makes a joke. Who knows, maybe F. Scott Fitzgerald can help you get out of a jam in Yankee Stadium. And the next thing you know, you're talking about Civil War Reconstruction. All this somehow for a sports story. And in the middle of the conversation, he basically, he doesn't get traded. He gets claimed by the New York Yankees. And mm -hmm. he has to leave the store. And then he goes <laughs> off to begin his new life in Yankee Stadium, where he yeah. was just talking about how Scott Fitzgerald <laughs> is going to help him get out of a jam. So yeah. this is... Uh, in, in sum, you were interviewing a baseball player about the books he reads in a bookstore, and he got he basically got traded in the middle of the interview. Yeah. Explain the, the story how it from how it came about to how it concluded. Yeah, so it came about when I was working for the Mariners. I got to know Corey then, and you know, you pick up things the guy say, and you have like, you know, kind of more casual conversations with them and because I was working with um I speak Spanish proficiently so I was working with a lot of the Latin players so I would be I would be like in and out of the clubhouse fairly often um so I got to know him I think in spring training um the first like the year but I, I got to know him the first like spring training that I worked for them or the only spring training I worked for them and um you know, I just remember him mentioning how much he liked books. And I remember seeing him reading in the clubhouse and just thinking to myself, like, that's interesting. Like, you know, um, <laughs> that's not something that you see every day. Yep. And I, I was writing stories for the Mariners um, website at the time. And I asked him if he'd be open to, to going to a bookstore together. And he said he was. Then I got, you know, got my job with The Athletic. But before I left, I asked him if he would still be open to it. And he said he was. So I kind of just like kept it in the back of my mind. I was kind of preoccupied with the WNBA stuff at first. But yeah, we set something up and, you know, it was, it was just one of those stories where he was, I mean, it just kind of like fell into place perfectly between him saying the thing about Yankee Stadium and him getting the call. And, you know, at first I was kind of like, what's going on? Like what? You know, at that point we had been in this bookstore for two hours and I thought I was just going to kind of report it. Like the, the reporting aspect of that one is kind of unique just because it starts as like, you think you're just reporting, I don't know, like this thing that happened in the past, but then I don't know, you're kind of like peeling the curtain back for the reader to like see what you're seeing, you know, like kind of, you're almost like cluing them into the reporting process and it takes this like kind of unexpected turn and the reader is like seeing it in real time you're not I guess you're not really like shifting you know tenses or like you know you're not it's not like past and present like you're not like shifting time but it was definitely uh a different <laughs> such a cool story like, yeah. you're, you're, like I'm if this podcast has largely been um about all different types of things and this is the, when I was like, oh, I should do a sports one now that I'm 50 episodes in and I haven't done, you know, I, I've done one sports episode and I'm, I work in sports. And, but what you write goes so far like beyond sports that it just, it's really cool the way that everything kind of comes together. Okay, so that's, that's one example of, 
uh, the kind of piece that you've done, visiting a, a bookstore with a Major League Baseball <laughs> player talking the alchemist Civil War reconstruction and the Great Gatsby. <laughs> All right, so let's, let's take it to a much more serious um, part. You've said that your father is a hard act to follow sometimes. You just followed yeah. his act. A recent piece about yeah. former Major League Baseball player and New York City police officer Stan Jefferson for Fox Sports. It's a sad story in a lot of ways. He was at ground zero for days after 9-11 and he struggled. It's an understatement to say he struggled to deal yeah. with it. It's basically create, uh, created something for him that goes beyond social anxiety. The intrigue of this is in 2007, your dad wrote an article about Stan Jefferson and what he was dealing with in the first five to six years after 9-11. Now you're revisiting the story. I'm curious uh, what that experience was like. Yeah, you know, at first, because my dad had written a story like about Stan, I was not really keen on following it up um, just because I don't love, like I said, he's a tough act to follow and I knew I wasn't going to write something as good as he wrote it. So I was just like, why would I put myself in a position where I'm going to be compared to you? But, um, you know, I read his story and it was great, but he kind of took more of an angle of, um, you know, here's this homegrown kid from New York he caught Stan at a part part of his life where he had kind of hit rock bottom. So in that respect, the two stories were different. Not, not to say that Stan isn't struggling today. He's definitely still struggling, but um, his struggles are different. Um, I felt like that was an important difference between the two. And, you know, obviously with the 20th anniversary of 9-11, I felt like there, if I kind of centered it around 9-11 and like the ripple effects of that day and, you know, just focusing on how, you know, how that day affected one person, you know, this one specific person, then I could, I could probably differentiate it enough. Um, so that was, that was kind of how that, how that came to be. But yeah, it was definitely a difficult story for me to report just because, you know, it's, it's crazy. I mean, it sounds like an obvious thing to say, but it's crazy to think about if, if one person that was there and part of the cleanup, um, cleanup uh, effort was impacted in that way, in such a profound way where their entire life changed and they, their brain changed and, you know, they can't interact with people as easily as they once did. And, you know, it's just, it's just mind blowing to think of how many other people are out there that are still impacted by this, um, you know, and I never really thought about it in those terms. I think I'd kind of thought about it as this one big thing that happened that was horrible and this act of terrorism and, you know, but, but when you kind of take a closer look, um, it's it's a lot. Yeah, process certainly. Um, and uh, it was it was certainly very well done. Uh, that was for foxsports.com. I want to mm -hmm. run down a few other examples of pieces you've done. I'm just going to read a list here, and we'll talk about a couple of them. You did a lengthy piece on the lack of diversity and leadership in Major League Baseball. You wrote a profile of the A's owner who doesn't talk to anybody. You talked to yeah. 20 people, yeah. but not the owner himself. You did an obituary on a 35-year hot dog vendor. You profiled the police officer that put Ricky Henderson, who's one of the all-time great <laughs> baseball players, who are if you're unfamiliar with him, on the path mm -hmm. to success. You wrote a play about a player, a current player, who is taking a class in public health at Berkeley in the middle of the pandemic uh, <laughs> and wasn't telling anybody who he was. And then in your recent U.S. Open coverage, you, didn't, you do tennis too now, uh, yeah. a little green book of advice that one of the players had. And he went on to score a major uh, upset. So a, yeah. few, a few things here. 
one with the mate with the major league baseball diversity piece uh, that mm -hmm. was an intense piece has anything yeah. uh come up that in terms of uh follow-up yeah so i the reason that that piece came on my radar was because i was tooling around mlb's website one day and i came across their c-suite which is like their executive level like people in their organization and it was all white men um so I think right after that story published, they updated that page to include, I want to say two people of color, maybe three. I, I don't know off the top of my head. I'm, I'm, um, it's a guess. That would be a guess. But they definitely hired people after that story and updated that, that page or like who they consider part of their executive suite, so to speak. So um so I think, I mean, it's, it's hard to, you know, with those kinds of things, it's hard to point to an exact cause and effect kind of thing. But um, um, I think it probably had some, you know, had some effect. Well, it's an interesting experience writing a piece in which you have someone saying that the commissioner, the person in charge of Major League Baseball, uh, does not have diversity on his radar, uh, certainly. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, so then... Uh, the A's owner story. This is this is a good kind of educational thing for I think anyone that's trying to do a big feature on a reclusive uh, kind of subject where you have to work around a lot of things. Um, what was the experience like of trying <laughs> to find people who would talk about this guy who's uh, basically the heir to the Gap fortune, right? Uh, yeah. And he's worth billions of dollars and he won't talk to anybody um yeah. what was that like uh tough um <laughs> it was tough uh like a long long process I reported that out for months um but yeah it was basically just talking to as many people as I could I remember going through the media guides and just like running through the names of the people that were on this um what's the word like in the ownership group um and like weren't in the ownership group anymore to see if there were like people that you know wouldn't they would have less at stake you know if they if they talked to me now like you know it was, it, like I obviously reached out to people in the organization who are still in the organization but um usually people are more inclined to talk if they're not still working there so um I remember like combing through media guides and like one of them ended up working out like a former guy and um, his name is Guy Saperstein, but he was in the ownership group. But, um, but yeah, so what, so that, what, that what's the key there? Like, what's the, the key to, to getting a piece like that done? Yeah. Patience and just, you just really have to be dogged about reaching out to as many people as you can possibly think of and being really creative with who you reach out to, you know, like um, it doesn't always have to be something as obvious as an ownership group you know sometimes it can be like I didn't do this in my story but like a thought that I had was where's his suite you know in the ballpark and um like who are the, the um workers that are in and out of there you know like who are the um like designated I don't know you know what I mean like who's like the, the suite attendants like, yeah. yeah like the suite attendants like that's again I didn't he doesn't sit in a suite as far as I can tell he sits behind a home plate so like I didn't end up that didn't end up factoring in but that's like an example of like I think the way that you kind of have to think with these kinds of stories um you really have to I at least I try to think outside of the box and like just try to think of like who is this person interacting with on a day-to-day -day basis you know and maybe it's not as obvious as like 
their boss or like their he doesn't have a boss but like you know what i mean like they're <laughs> the people that work for him or like sure. you know so um so just trying to be creative well, who do you imagine that you're writing for when you write pieces like that in, in that situation definitely the fan base because the fan base is like i mean we hear about it we would hear about it all the time like how angry people were that he made x decision or y decision and not only was he making these decisions but he wasn't talking about them publicly or like explaining why i think a big part of this is just the lack of uh communication and like lack of clarity like no one knows why certain decisions are being made so then they assume that they're being made because he's cheap or because he's you know like yeah basically just because he's cheap so there's a lot of assuming going on a lot of assumptions being made because he's not filling that void with like rhetoric <laughs> yep. so so that was that was who i was writing that one for you covered the a's for a year you covered major league mm -hmm. baseball for a year somewhere like new york you go in the press box the ratio of men to women covering the game it's huge it's a it's a complete total there are very few women and lots of uh, men covering the the, mm -hmm. the mets for the yankees in oakland it's a little different san francisco chronicle reporter was a woman for a long time yeah. San Jose Mercury News reporter is a woman. Uh, MLB.com had a female reporter. I know AP's had uh, female reporters covering the A's, um, and you're there. Uh, what was the experience uh, like for you being a, a female sports writer specific to, to being in that city? It was, I mean, it was interesting because it was kind of like the same thing when I was covering the WNBA too, you know, like a lot of, um, a lot of female reporters on that beat. I don't know. It felt, it felt comfortable for me. Um, you know, I felt like, you know, you definitely encounter situations where people, um, you don't get the sense that they're taking you, uh, as seriously as they might otherwise take you. Um, you know, but it was, I, I, I don't know, I guess I felt like in that environment, it was a little bit, it might not have been as bad as it otherwise would, you know, would be in a different in a different market just because there were female reporters that were on that beat like by the time I got there so how do you get people to open up to you uh as well as you do because you you clearly seem to have a a, a knack and a gift for that and whether that's Stan Jefferson or Corey Guerin or people talking about the owner John Fisher or uh Matt Olson or Matt Chapman on the A's that some of their star players or the WNBA athletes that you've covered or the U S open mm -hmm. uh, people or Kim Ng, who's baseball's first female GM when you happen to catch her in her, in a seat at the U S open. Uh, I noticed that that seems to be a common thing that people just, people open up to you very well. I think a lot of it has to do with like preparation and just showing that you're interested in more than um, just like their stat line or their credentials or, you know, like I, I, honestly think it has less to do with me and more to do with the fact that like I guess the type of story that I'm reporting and making that clear to them like with Matt Olson um I was writing a story about um a dear friend of his from home who is autistic and um you know they talk regularly and I just wanted to write a story about their relationship and the story really hadn't been written I just heard about it from his brother um so you know, like, I don't know, I think it's finding topics that these people that like mean a lot to these different people. And then, you know, just making it clear to them that you're only 
like you're really there to write that story and write it well and write it and, and do it in an accurate way. I think that that's kind of the key. I don't know if that makes sure. sense or not, but um, another example, like I think probably the best example of this is I wrote a story about um, Sandy Koufax and Dave Stewart a little while ago um, about how uh, Sandy Koufax mentored Dave Stewart early in his career and he taught him um, the stare which I think is funny because I don't really think of Sandy when I think of like a menacing stare I think of <laughs> Dave but you know Sandy was intimidating in his own right so um, but you know Sandy ended up talking that talking for that story and I think the moral of that lesson was you know here's a guy that like never really talks to anyone but if you get him on the right topic like he doesn't want to talk about his career you know he's asked about that a million times he doesn't want to talk about Yom Kippur like he's asked about that a lot like you know if you catch him on a subject that he's not asked about a ton and it also like you know and this is a person that means a lot to him you know I, I think that that is um it, that can be the difference maker sometimes so um, so I think a lot of times it's, it's like the, the topic of the story more than anything else. One other, before we, uh, we ask our, our final question here, mm-hmm. um, you wrote a first person story about, you mentioned earlier that your sister is a soccer player at Penn state university. She was also drafted to play professional soccer. And you wrote yeah. about the experience of what that was like. Uh, first person stories are always really interesting to me. So I'm curious what, uh, what that, what that piece was like for you. Yeah, I mean, it was, I, I don't really write in first person that often, um, but I, I felt like that was the only way that I could really do that because um, I had seen her journey kind of firsthand, but it was really important to me in writing it that I was honest about our relationship and how it wasn't always like us supporting each other. Like we're, we're in that place now, but it doesn't, it took us a while to get there. And I think it's really natural you know, like they say sibling rivalries and stuff like that. But I, I just thought it was like, it's like a natural emotion for two sisters to have. And I felt like that might be able, people might be able to relate to that, you know? So I wanted to tell it in a way that was vulnerable. Um, you know, that's what I always want the people that I talk to, you know, I, I always want to write stories that are vulnerable that, you know, that's what I'm always hoping to achieve when I write something. So I figured like, why not expect the same thing out of myself? Right. Sure. Exactly. <laughs> so, um, so that was kind of my approach to that one, but, but yeah, it was something that I did on a whim. I was watching, um, I was watching on draft night and, you know, it just, I was more impacted by it than I thought I would, you know, on an emotional level. And when I'm feeling a lot of, um, it sounds stupid, but when I'm feeling a lot of emotions, like I often just write and like, I wrote when my grandpa who I was very close to passed away, like, and this was before I gotten to journalism it's just what I've always done to kind of process what's going on around me and um so I just started writing about her journey and then halfway through I texted the soccer editors and was like um do you guys want this like <laughs> I'm, I'm writing this story about my <laughs> sister uh you know like I'm almost done I have like 600 words left at that point like I honestly I started writing it I did not have the intention of it like ever seeing the light of day but it did. So and it was pretty cool. <laughs> it was great. All right. So a lot of other topics we could certainly touch on here, but I want to bring this to a, to a close. We always ask our guests at the end of the interview to pick a journalism organization that they would like to salute for their good work. 
I would say Mark Herrig. Mark Herrig, um, he's just been, you know, I, I ran it, I, I met him through The Athletic, um, but I'm still in touch with him. And he's just such a great writer. I love his voice, but he's also, um, he's just been such a, like, a mentor for me and a sounding board for different questions. And a lot of these questions are kind of nuanced. They're like situational, like, is X fair if I give this person X time to respond or like, how should I frame Y or, you know, and, he, and he's great at answering that kind of stuff. And I just, I have a lot of admiration for the way that he, you know, a lot of people respect him. And um, I think it's because he goes about his job in a really empathetic way you know like I remember one time he um we were talking about sources and I was complaining that I didn't have any like I didn't have enough sources in (laughs) the A's organization and he was like why are you thinking of them as sources like why like I hate that word why are we talking about them that way and he kind of helped me rethink the way you know like and we shouldn't be I mean these are all people right like we shouldn't be looking at them any differently we should just be looking at them as people and you know reframing it that way in my head really helped so that's just like one little example but mark is is someone that comes to mind for that that's a good call mark curry a editor i believe believe he's basically like a story coach at the athletic uh yeah he's an i don't know exactly what his um thing it might be like talent development or something i'm not sure exactly what his his title is but yeah he's excellent all right alex coffee thank you for taking the time to join us best of luck yeah thanks for having me I have some follow-up with Alex, but first I want to tell you about a podcast that I've checked out recently. All over the world, democracy is getting turned upside down. Populism, autocratic rule, and disinformation are short-circuiting deliberation and consensus. The process is broken. The consequences are dire. So what can you do about it? Join Will Hitchcock and Siva Vadyanathan on Democracy in Danger. Each week they interview brilliant guests who are helping save the government by the people, one episode at a time. Find Democracy in Danger wherever you get your podcasts or visit dindanger.org. After we got done with the interview, I realized I had been a little rude. I picked out all the stories that I asked Alex about, but I never gave her the chance to share her favorite story. So I asked a follow-up. I think my favorite one ever was one that I I wrote for, uh, let's see, I wrote it for The Athletic, and it was about a bullpen coach who was the descendant of a Negro League um, a former Negro Leagues player, um, and he was. It was basically just a story about how the ne- the record keeping in the Negro Leagues isn't always, you know, it's it's spotty. Even even though they've, you know, like with the rollout and Baseball Reference and all that stuff, it's better than it was. But his his uh, grandfather, there were no records or anything of his career. It was all word of mouth. Um, so it basically, just became the story about like him carrying his grandfather's story and trying to tell it to anyone he can because there isn't um any sort of tangible record of his grand grandfather's career um you know and I think a lot of like Negro League's descendants deal with that because you know it's like I said the record keeping is spotty so that one kind of sticks out in my mind but um but they're all like my children seriously read Alex's work it's awesome and speaking from experience Reading her work will motivate you to dig deeper and write more. By the way, we're looking for feedback. If you listen to the show regularly, please let me know what you think and how we can improve. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Journalism Salute. Please let us know what you think of the show. You can find us on Twitter at J 
journalismpod. And you can email us at journalismsalute at gmail.com.